Amen. And as you're being seated, our children will be dismissed to their children's church. And we want to encourage them as they go. Come thou fount, come thou king. I love that song. It's one of my favorite hymns. I'm using my computer this morning because technology failed me. Can y'all believe it? The, uh, the, the phone that we usually use for, to um, set up our live stream, for whatever reason, did not want to turn on today. Um, I, I had it plugged in, uh, charged, ready. I opened it up, it's fully charged. I powered it down and I said, okay, I'll just wait a few minutes. Uh, I don't want it to waste any battery sitting around. I went to turn it back on and nothing. So my phone is being used in the service. The phone's giving up a lot to, uh, to allow the live stream to come through. But uh, So now I have my laptop up here this morning and I feel a little bit goofy about it. You know, there's some preachers who are real slick and they have like, they'll have like a computer, they'll have like a stand and they can come over here and they can sit and like look at things and then they walk over here and they talk a little bit. I could never do that. I have none of that slickness to me. Um, And uh, I guess I could practice it a little bit maybe throughout the week, but I still would fall short. So I have to make a, I have to make a big old deal about having my laptop up here today. Uh, This morning, I hope that you've already been blessed. Um, I invite us right now just to come before the Lord and think about that song that we sang, Come Thou Fount, Come Thou King. We know that Jesus has come, and of course, that is a prayer that we pray knowing that he not only is going to come in person, but we also know that he sends his spirit to us, because he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. But also, when it becomes a prayer of, That great hope, that great longing that we all have, that one day he will return. And so, wherever your heart's at this morning, let's bow before the Lord. Let's ask him to meet with us today. God, I pray and I ask that you would be with us as we continue. As we come to your word, Lord, as we talk about the great text that you've given us, the great stories that you've given us. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Uh, Lord, here's what I know. I know that many of us have heard these stories over and over and over and over again. And Lord, uh, we know the story. Uh, We know the call of these stories, Lord. But God, I pray and I ask that you would be with us, that we would not come from a place of assumption today. But we would be open to your spirit, speaking what you have for us today. And sometimes, Lord, uh, we want a new thing to be said whenever there's nothing new to be said at all. We bore, we tire of the same old, same old. May it never be so for us today. Maybe we hear the thing that you've spoken to us over and over and over again. Lord, allow us to receive it freshly today. For those of us who will be instructed with something new today, we pray, Lord, that that 
We pray it would not just be a novelty of something new that they hear. But Lord, it would be a transformative word for their faith, for their life as a disciple. Maybe it will be the word that leads them into faith, Lord. We pray. We pray that you would be with us, you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would be with me. Um, I pray that you'd call me, that you would settle me. Lord, I pray that I would speak uh, that which you have me to speak, nothing more, uh, nothing less. I pray that you would uh, hear these prayers in Christ's mighty, resurrected name. Amen. Um, Y'all know this about me, y'all should, or you might. Um, I the way that, uh, that art can kind of uh, represent an image, if you will. And, and sometimes images are done through paintings I can't paint at all. Right? But, um, uh, but, but images are presented maybe through paintings, but they can also be preserved, uh, presented through lyrics or song. Uh, they can be presented. Uh, through poetry, or even great narratives, stories. Can, can paint a picture, provide an image, that really it has another message to tell. Art can, art can be one thing, it can, it can provide an image that is trying to inform you about something else. This is like what Jesus did with his parables a lot, right? His parables were these stories, and they were real earthly stories, and what I mean by earthly stories is, 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 is often like what we've said is a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's like something that I, I learned growing up, and, and, and there are these stories that just kind of deal with the raw materials of life, right? There was a story about this lady who, 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 who just kind of persistently came before this this judge, this ruler, uh, trying to plead her cause. And, and, and ultimately what Jesus says is the guy just got tired of her nagging. And he was like, okay, I'm he's like, I'm not even a good judge. And I love like Jesus says that, like puts that in the guy's mouth. Like the guy says, me being somebody who's wicked, yet this woman just keeps persisting. And, and he tells us that about prayer, which I think is pretty unique because sometimes I think that we we feel like we're nagging when we're praying and Jesus is like, that's okay. Um, so these stories are told and they, and, and, and they pre present an image and you can imagine, you can imagine this, this woman who is kind of this lone voice in a society where women don't have a dominant voice and she just keeps hounding and keeps hounding, and keeps hounding. Uh, we, we've known people like that. I think about like Donna Carricker. Donna Carricker fought for a long time to get the case heard of this little boy whose family built a plywood box to keep him in. And the DA wasn't wanting to and it's not just that they didn't want to. You have to have a preponderance of evidence to present a case. But she was just, I'm not going to let this child's life be forgotten. And she fought so that justice, so that his case could be heard. Um, 
the whole Bible actually is beautifully, artfully crafted and created. One of the things that gets lost about Genesis chapter number one, uh, especially like post-enlightenment and with the modern era and with, you know, the rise of uh, the discussions about evolution is what, what we did was we took this beautiful document. It's this beautiful poem. It's a song celebrating creation. And we tried to make it into a science document. We try, well, let's just see. We're, we're, we tried to apply the scientific method, if you will, to it. And it's like, God gave us this poem. And it, and it tells us of beauty and truth. And the big truth and the main truth out of that is that God is creator. That is the truth. But we start parsing everything. Well, I mean, right here in between, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and, 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 and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There could have been millions of years here. There could have been. The story that is told in Genesis 1 is that God took and he ordered creation. And he did it. He did it. Uh, he put creation together in this order, and there is beauty and there's generosity going on and, and ultimately he sets man in his creation and he says I want you to reveal me in this place but the Bible is actually a whole bunch of stories of people, real people we believe that lived and breathed but it's through their stories that you and I read and it begins to inform us about our lives it begins to teach us, oh no, it's like uh, the scripture's been called a mirror that you, you hold it up sometimes and, and you're looking at it and sometimes you're like, I don't like what I see in the mirror. Have y'all ever felt that way standing in front of a mirror? That's why you stand and maybe sometimes you just like kind of hold your hand here. Because, like I don't want to see, you know, that part of it. And sometimes you look in the mirror and sometimes... Looking pretty good. And that should be all right. Sometimes scripture reveals something to you that is encouraging to you. I think sometimes we go to the text or we come before, uh, you know, the sermon or, or sing a song and, and, and oh, well, let's find all the ways that we're not doing it. Why can't we celebrate the ways that we are doing it? And I'm not talking about being proud and arrogant. I'm talking about honest celebration which an honest celebration of anything good that we're doing is also an honest celebration of God and his grace. Right? Because we're recognizing and we're acknowledging I could do no good were it not for the good that's been done to me by God. So Jesus used stories to provide images. Jesus and God and the Spirit gave us this text that is full with stories that build images and they inform us about our lives, the truth, the reality of things. And so Jesus likes to use images, right? Jesus doesn't just tell us the cold, hard facts. And I think we should probably key into that. Sometimes when we read things, 
Like, people will come, and, 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 and they'll ask you a question. They'll be like, well, what do you do in this scenario? And you go, okay, well, Jesus told this story, and the story goes like this. And, and what it ultimately ends up is you could do this, or you could do this, and that sometimes it's okay to do this. And then they go, yeah, but what should I do? I just need the cold, hard facts. I need the black and white answer. And you go, no, the Spirit has to lead you. This great proverb that, uh, and I mean, I always forget where the proverb's at, but there's this proverb. The first one says, do not answer a fool in his folly or you'll be a fool yourself. And the very following proverb says, answer a fool in his folly. To correct him. And you go, so what do you do? Well, sometimes you do A and sometimes you do B. Well, how do I know? You go, God, is it A or B today? So that's what I want us to think about the triumphal entry. That text that we just read today. This triumphant entry, it's a thing that happened. right? It's an event, a reality. It took place. Jesus told two of his disciples, he said... Hey, listen, I want you, we're, we're, we're arriving to Jerusalem, we're getting close to Jerusalem, uh, Luke chapter number 19, all the way back in Luke chapter number 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And throughout Luke, I believe in chapter 14 and chapter 17, Luke reminds us a couple times. He says, hey, as he was intent on going to Jerusalem, as he was persisting towards Jerusalem, and then finally in Luke chapter number 19, 10 chapters later, in, 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 as we have the chapter and verse designations, Jesus is now, he's, he's just outside of the city and he's about to go in to Jerusalem and he says, here's what we're going to do. He says, I need you to go get a donkey. I need you to go actually get a baby donkey. One that's never been ridden on before. And he says, now if anybody asks what you're doing, because I just told you to go commandeer a donkey. He says, if anybody asks what you're doing, just say the Lord has need of it. And so then Jesus, yeah, they bring this, this, this donkey to Jesus. They lay down their coats on top of it. And Jesus climbs on. And he begins to descend the Mount of Olives. And if you've never seen an image or you've never been to Jerusalem, like the Mount of Olives, actually, it's to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And in between the Mount of Olives and the eastern gate of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. And so when you're on the Mount of Olives, you're actually kind of like looking directly across to the city of Jerusalem. And really, to you can see the city and and kind of have a vantage point. You're kind of level, and, and in some respects, you can have a vantage point over the city. But to get to uh, 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 Jerusalem uh, from the Mount of Olives uh, means that you have to descend into the Kidron Valley before you begin to rise up again. And so Jesus begins to descend from the Mount of Olives as he's about to ascend to the city Jerusalem, entering in through the eastern gate, we would presume there. 
And they begin to lay down their palm leaves and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God and glory in the highest. We've heard these kind of words before in Luke's gospel when Jesus was born. Glory to God. Peace on earth. Glory in the highest. Goodwill to everyone. So now Jesus goes into Jerusalem and there is this quote-unquote triumphant procession. And I believe that uh, Jesus, we know he did this in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter number 9's prophecy that said, uh, Behold, your king comes and he's riding the colt of a donkey. So I believe he did this in fulfillment. But I also believe that Jesus saw in Zechariah chapter number 9 a great image. A great image. And he said, we're going to follow this image. And we're going to let this image speak. And this image speaks in a lot of different ways. In Jesus' day, they would have known about a king's or a general, a warring general's triumphant entry. In fact, in Rome, they had this processional ceremony. It was a civil and religious ceremony. It was called the Triumphus, which is why we would call this Jesus' triumphant entry. And the triumphus was a civil and religious rite of ancient Rome, and it was held to celebrate and to sanctify the success of a military commander. So let's think about this. The military commander, after being victorious in battle, would have this procession into the city. One author describes it like this. He says, on the day of his triumph, the general would wear a, a crown of laurel and all purple, gold embroidered, uh, a, a, a crown of laurel, an all purple robe, which had gold embroidered in it. The regalia that he would wear would identify him as near divine or near kingly. In some accounts, his face was painted red, perhaps in imitation of Rome's highest and most powerful god, Jupiter. And the general would ride in a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome. And there would be an unarmed procession with his army, captives, and the spoils of his war. So all those who were captive, uh, uh, you know, made captive by him, they would come in with their shackles. You would see uh, carts bringing in you know, gold and, and tapestries and, and all the things that they were able to loot and plunder. Then there would be the military coming in. And then there would be the general, the victorious general, and then he'd be on his chariot, and there would be four stallions, four steeds pulling that chariot. Because it takes four stallions to pull my chariot. He would ride through the streets of Rome 
And they said some of these events could take multiple days. Because they would proceed, and, and, and ultimately they're going to the Capitolina, uh, the, the, the high hill in Rome, where, they are, where he is going to offer sacrifices of two pure white oxen. He's going to offer them to Jupiter, thanking Jupiter for overseeing them in this victorious battle, for giving favor to this general and to their army. Ultimately, that's where he was going. But they would make stops along the way, sometimes plan stops. And we've seen these kind of, this kind of pomp and circumstance of, of, of military victory or of world leaders go through. You know, an entourage of cars, a caravan of cars, all black SUVs, flags waving. Now, most people in Jerusalem and most people in the Roman Empire did not get to attend one of these. They probably would have never had seen one of these up close and personal in Rome, a triumphus in Rome. But they would have known a lot about it. Like, like the, 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 the triumphus, it, it permeated Roman imagination, and then it was, it was actually, you know, every, every general who came in, uh, they, would, they, they would mint coins, and they would have images on those coins from their, their triumphus, and it would not only commemorate them, but it would also propagate this general's, you know, uh, his skill, his wisdom, his authority. They would propagate, hey, we are victorious. And so it didn't matter if you'd ever seen a triumphus in Rome, you knew about a triumphus in Rome. But outside of the, the great triumphus at Rome that would take place, was, was, uh, you could imagine that like, people like Herod the Great would have his own processions whenever he would enter into Jerusalem. In fact, we would imagine that uh, Jesus probably, we should consider that not only was Jesus showing up to Jerusalem that week, but we know that Pilate and Herod were in Jerusalem that week. So imagine Jesus coming in on the east and they entering in from the west all about the same time. And there's so much that we could say about what Jesus is imaging through this. And we've said a lot about it before here at this church. I've spoken about it. Others have as well. And there's so much more that we're going to say about it. And some of it is saying the same things over and over again. Sometimes you just say the same thing in a new creative way because you want it to be fresh. But this morning as I think about this image... I know we know that it stands in contrast to the image that I've just told you about Rome. There's a lot of contrast there, right? Where's his, where's his captives? Where's his spoils of war? Oh, wait, hold on. The first contrast is Jesus is having a triumphant entry. Where was the triumph? What has he done to secure victory? 
Because a triumphant entry is that which you do once you've secured victory. And in fact, you couldn't just put together a triumphus. The Senate had to, the Senate had the ruling authority to say, this is a, a victory. They declared that victory. It wasn't, you remember George Bush standing on USS Abraham Lincoln and the banner behind him said, mission accomplished. And there was still a lot more fighting to do in Iraq. And we lost more soldiers after that time in Iraq. Congress would have said, well, we can say, hey, here's a good update on the battle. We cannot say mission has been accomplished. Victory has been had. So first and foremost, there's this contrast where Jesus is doing a triumphant entry and no triumph has taken place. In fact, as we're reading the story, there's, there's a group of people who are for Jesus, but the authorities, the powers that be, they, keep, they continue to hold Jesus in suspicion. So he's having his own quote-unquote triumphus, and there is no triumph yet. So then you don't have, in contrast to the triumphus, you don't have all of his captives and all of his spoils preceding him. Where's the four horses and the chariot? They're not there. He's riding on a lone, lowly donkey. And as my friend Jack likes to point out, it wasn't just a donkey, it was a lowly donkey, right? It wasn't the BMW of donkeys. It was the pacer of donkeys. And so this image stands in contrast. We get that. We get that it's contrasting. But here's what I want us to see today, too, is that this image stands in critique. It's not just contrast. It's a critique. And him riding in on a donkey at the beginning of the week not only stands as a contrast and as a critique, but it pre-images the cross. It tells you something about the way of the cross. So let's first talk about the critique of this. Now, here's the deal. You could imagine, I think there's a couple ways that you can imagine people responding to this. You could imagine that people would respond to this and go, oh my, look at, that's cute. That's silly. Do you see this? Come here, gather around. You can imagine like people getting up on the on the city wall like they would like they mocked and scoffed Joshua and their army as they marched around Jericho. Do you see what they're doing out there? Oh my god. Oh, wait, we're so scared. You're marching around silently. Do 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 right. Like what's gonna happen? We're all shaking. You can imagine that people would look at this and scoff. But here's the interesting thing in the story is the Pharisees don't see this as any laughing matter. 
Stop what they're doing. You need to tell them to stop. So some people at least took it seriously. The Pharisees, we no doubt, did not want them praising Jesus and giving glory to God because of the work that Jesus had done. Because the Pharisees did not, as we saw, by and large, they did not agree with Jesus. Jesus had come in and he had offered them critique after critique after critique. So this image critiques, it stands as a critique of of this other show of power and authority. Sometimes we, we do this. Sometimes we think somebody who has it all together, they have the cars, they have the house, their kids look like, you know, uh, they're well-behaved, they're well-dressed, they're well-mannered, right? They, they, they get good grades in school. Sometimes what we do is we look at those things and we go, they got it all together, don't they? And sometimes that is true. But sometimes that is a facade. And we live in an area where we prop up that facade, don't we? That's what we all want. We all want it to be together. We want to have the right house, the right cars, the right kids, getting the right grades, doing the right things. And if I could get all this, then life would be good. And it, that does make life kind of good. I would like my boys to be a little bit more well-behaved around the house. It'd be easier for me day in, day out. But ultimately, things like that can become idolatrous. And people will challenge, so do you not want to have, no, that's not what we're saying here. But also, maybe you need to see it in an image. Maybe if you have it all and you have it proceeding before you and it all looks like great victory, you're following a way of victory that does not look like the way of the cross. I say that Jesus does this in critique because in chapter number 22, his disciples actually are arguing. This is after the Lord's Supper. This is, this is so, this is a, a mirror of us. This is actual humanity. After the Lord's Supper, Jesus is instituted. It says, then they, they being his disciples, begin to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them, who would have the most authority, the most prestige, the most influence, the most power. And then Jesus said, In this world the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. 
right? They come in with all this power, with all this pomp, with all this circumstance. They are the ones riding on the golden chariot, and yet they're called friends. I served you while all my servants are bringing me food. While they're providing for me. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like the servant. This is in chapter 22, verses 24 through 26, by the way. Uh, Those uh, who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank. The leader should be like the servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am the one, for I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says in critique of the way of the rulers of this world, they say they are serving you, but they are being served, and I am coming to serve you. And the donkey in this image serves to critique the other image of power, of authority, of might, of victory, being all that we could steal, kill, and destroy. How we could wield our influence and our authority and our violence and our hate over people. And Jesus says, here's a donkey, and I'm going into the city and people didn't see it as just this, like, oh, well, have, you know, look at that pathetic thing. They said, ooh, this is dangerous. This needs to stop. This can't keep going on. So it stands in critique, but it also stands as an image of what's going to happen in just a few days in Jesus' life. And this is something that I think is interesting when we think about the triumphus, the triumphus, A, it happened before or it happened after the victory, but it was a procession. And at the end of the procession, you would go up to the hill, the Capitolina, and then you would offer sacrifices to the God of Jupiter if you were a Roman general. And Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he is going to offer a sacrifice. Is he going to take two pure oxen? No, we know. He's going to offer himself. He's going to lay down his life at the hands of people. And he's going to offer his life for the sake of those people. At the end of the week, the people who are scoffing him, the people who arrest him, the people who beat him, the people who mock him as he hangs on the cross, Jesus is not going to pray a prayer of reprecation upon them. He's not going to say, Father, condemn them. Do you see what they're doing to your holy son? At the end of the week, in Luke's gospel, Jesus cries out from the cross and says, Father, forgive them.
So he not only offers himself at the hands of people who hate him and who are hostile against him. Down. But whenever he says, I'm going to oh, be silent and I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to accept what you do to me, what he is in effect saying is, is, I'm laying down my life without taking yours. I'm laying down my life for your life. In place of you who are wrong who are evil, who are mistreating the one. I lay down my life. So this morning we see that through this image, that contrast, the other popular images of a general or ruler, king, entering into their capital city. But he also critiques that way. And he also gives us, gives us a little bit of a preview of coming attractions, what's going to take place on the cross. What's going to take place on the cross is not a great show of power, of might, of authority. What's going to take place on the cross will be humiliating and shameful. And Jesus is going to bear it. He's going to bear people spitting on his face, plucking out his beard, people punching him and saying, who did it? Prophet, who did it? He's going to bear being hung naked right outside the city gate as people are coming in and out and as people are scoffing him as he's suffering to catch a breath. As vultures are circling overhead. As no doubt people not only speak evil things as they walk by him. But they spit. They shout. They throw things. He rides in on this donkey, and it's interesting because it's, this, it's just this silly kind of thing. Nobody should take it seriously, but they do take it seriously, and they say, you need to stop it, and you need to stop them. So they know it's a critique, but here's the other thing, is it reveals to us what's actually going to happen on the cross, and what happens on the cross is Jesus going to suffer a humiliating fate. Now here's where I think the rubber meets the road for you and me as we think about it as his disciples. A, our lives are to be lived in contrast and in critique of the way of this world. How much does our life live in contrast and critique of the way of this world. 
and how much are we measuring our lives up by the standards of this world? And then also, I think something for us to really consider as we think about, well, I'm going to take up my cross daily, especially in our proud society, and we live in a proud society because I'm proud to be an American because we're exceptional. And I'm proud to be Macaulay Austin because I'm exceptional. Y'all, this week, I changed the gasket, the, head ga- uh, the, the valve cover gasket on my truck. I'd never done work that deep into my truck before. It took me a couple hours. Um, I have like a little bit of bruising from leaning over in my engine compartment, but I feel real good about myself. Real good about myself. Look what I did. You know how I did it? Um, uh, I uh, watched a YouTube video and he told me everything to do. I followed it step by step. So, well, you did awesome, Macaulay. But I think one thing that really, I think we think about Jesus' suffering, we think about, you know, the theological aspects of Jesus' death and all those things, but maybe this week what we should just kind of like walk through is like, Jesus is going to be utterly humiliated. And I don't like to be slightly humiliated. Do you? And so one of the things that we know about the way of the cross is the way of the cross is humiliating. And you and I don't stand for being humiliated. But Jesus bears humiliation. And if we're going to follow him on the way, the way of the cross, then maybe that's where we should start. And with that, my brothers and my sisters, I say amen. Uh, Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for who you are. God, I pray, and I thank you for your word. Lord, I wish that I was uh, the most competent communicator of your word, but I don't believe that's the case all the time. However, Lord, I trust in you and your spirit far more than I trust in my ability. And so, Lord, that is what I come to you today with, begging for you to speak through your Spirit. Continue to uphold the Word and the message that is true, that is necessary, the Word that we need, Lord, I pray. I pray these things in Christ's name. I'm going to ask you just for a moment, just for a moment, just to think about that. Where does your life live in contrast and critique of the way of this world? And where, maybe, Lord, reveal to me where my life is actually living according to the standards of this world?